Amen. Uh, just like you, I've been touched by the entire lyrics that we've been singing that it reminds us of an eternal promise that in Christ, God was breaking the controlling power of sin and not only saved us, He has fully redeemed us. And what our prayer is for you is that you increasingly step into what that means. And, and we're gonna wrap up this series in the Psalms by looking at what Martin Luther called the Pauline Psalm. It's an Old Testament Psalm with incredible New Testament truths. It's Psalm 130, but before we go there, let's pause to pray that God would just speak to us. Father, we thank you for the truth, not only of the song that we've just uh, rejoiced in, but the truth of every song that we've sung. It reminds us, Father, that Christian worship isn't about style, it's actually about content. And the content today is spoken of an act. The act of you, in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, that has broken the controlling power of sin and not only saved us, but fully redeemed us. Father, help us step into what that means for us as we journey through this psalm, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do take your seats for those of you who are standing. Good uh, morning to you. Great to uh, be with you again. Vipka and I have uh, just returned from uh, a couple of weeks, 15 days without kids. It was awesome. Uh, he lives in Australia anyway, so that's totally fine uh, for me to say it. And the others are all at home or in their group, so it's, it's good for me to say it. You know, I sometimes wonder, what is life going to be like without kids after these 15 days? Awesome. That's what I think. But uh, we got to uh, enjoy my children. But uh, it was just a really great uh, time for us. And, and uh, while I was there, it just gave me extra time to just dig into and reflect on the, the wonderful truth of Psalm 130. And so if you have a Bible, turn there, Psalm 130. And let's just read what this Psalm says to us as we prepare to focus our hearts on the communion table. Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept the record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sin. I love these words. And as you've listened to it, or as you've glanced at it, one discernible feature becomes apparent. The psalm is broken up into four sections, and each section is kind of highlighted through the repetition of a key word. And so in verses one and two, as you look at it, the key idea here is that we cry. The word cry is mentioned and repeated twice. Then we go into verses 3 and 4, and as we read verses 3 and 4, we notice that the word repeated isn't forgiveness or sin, it's Lord. 
repeated twice, just as it is in verse 1. The focus here of crying is on the Lord himself. Then you go into verses 5 and verse 6, and you see that the, the phrase that's repeated there is the word wait four times. So you have the idea of crying to the Lord and then waiting for what? Verses 7 and 8, redemption. Redemption, that's the phrase here. And when you look at this, this psalm that Martin Luther called the Pauline psalm is broken up into kind of four sections. It tells the story of a psalmist who finds himself through probably his own choices and his own actions in a position of despair, of regret, of shame, and of guilt who cries out to God knowing that God forgives, that if he waits on God, there will be full redemption. That's why Martin Luther calls this the Pauline Psalm. It echoes, the, the, in a sense, the Roman road. This idea that all of us invariably at certain points in time find ourselves in a situation where the weight of sin, guilt, shame, despair, oppression, addiction, whatever it is, causes us to lift our heads up to God and cry out to him. And in that moment, the goodness of the gospel tells us that God hears that, he comes to us, and not only saves us, he fully redeems us. What I want to do as we prepare to come around the communion table is I just want to walk through the psalm section by section. Beginning in verses one and two with this idea that sometimes in life we get to the point where we find ourselves crying out to God. I have little doubt that the vast majority of us attend church on the weekends because at some point we have cried out to God or maybe because right now you find yourself in a situation where you are crying out to God. And what this Psalm says is listen, God hears. God hears. The psalmist says that he has cried to God out of the depths. That word literally means the deepest places. We've all followed the story a couple of weeks ago of the, uh, what is it, the, the soccer team in Thailand, I believe it was, that was stuck in a cave in a, dark, a, deep, a deep and a dark place. They needed help from the outside. Their cries came from a literal deep place. But the word in the Hebrew can mean that, but it also means from the deepest anguished part of our being, the deep places. We find ourselves crying out to him. And the psalmist says, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. One of the questions that this psalm poses is this. How far is shouting distance when it comes to crying out to God? How far can we be for him to hear cries stemming from deep emotional anguish? Part of what Vipker and I wanted to do over the, the two, last two weeks was just retrace some of our steps. And so we went to Switzerland and... Um, when we were in Switzerland, we went to the place that we, were, uh, that we went 
to on honeymoon, and I love that place. It, it, we stand on one mountain, you look across a Swiss, uh, Swiss lake that is basically filled through the melting snow, and you look over to the Eiger, the Jungfrau, and the moon. It's one of my favorite places in the world because you just see the breadth of God's glory. And one of the things about Switzerland is it's known for a couple of things. You walk down a Swiss street, a high street, and you see watch shops basically everywhere. Switzerland is known for Swiss watch, the watches. It's also known if you hike in, in Switzerland, it's known for its cow bells. All, you know, a lot of the cows, the animals have basically got these bells on. Every time they move, you just hear the bells. It's kind of, if you watch downhill skiing in Europe, you'll hear them shaking the bells. But it's also known for its yodeling. Now, I would like to be able to yodel for you, but I will spare that because I can't do it. But when you're in Switzerland, sometimes you, you just treat it to Swiss yodeling. And historians will tell you that yodeling was a way of one village, a mountainous village, being able to communicate to another one. It made sure that before there were kind of telephones and technology, that each village in the mountain was within shouting distance of the other one. And they would say that the, the yodelers would be able to communicate to their cattle, but also from one kind of, we've got a, a town crier in Holland, right? But there would be the kind of town yodeler who would communicate a message, basically, from one village to another one. The Guinness World Records say that the human voice can project itself somewhere along the lines of 590 feet and 6.6 .6 inches, approximately. But with yodeling, it travels a whole load further than that. And it just meant that it would be possible for people to be within shouting distance of another one because being within shouting distance was a way of being safe. The question in this psalm is, how far is safe? When it comes to God, how far is safe? And the answer the psalmist gives is, it doesn't matter how far you go. It doesn't matter how far you run. It doesn't matter how far you've sunk. God hears. God hears. Vipka and I have spent most of our married life away from family. This idea of a shouting distance basically carries with it the idea that, oh, are you, your family close by? Are they within shouting distance, I'd be asked growing up. And, and the answer is we've most of our married life, most of our life lived away from family. They haven't been within shouting distance. But of course, God has placed us in a family of faith that means we're never alone. And what the psalmist is saying here is, look, through my own choices, through my own actions, I found myself in a very difficult place, a dark place, a desperate place, but I am rejoicing in the fact that when I cry out to God, even from my sin-filled state, God hears God hears. This is what Psalm 94 and verse 9 says to this. Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? I once read a Frank and Ernest cartoon strip where both characters are standing by a public telephone and one character is turning to the other one and saying, now I'm really worried. I just dialed 1-800-DIAL-A-PRAYER and I got a discontinued number. Ever felt like that? Ever felt like from a place in anguish you've cried out to God and you wonder whether he hears you? 
You wonder whether he's listening. Psalm 130, Psalm 94 tells you, he's, he's listening. He hears you. Can he who fashioned the ear and the eye not see and hear? That truth is filled in the New Testament too. 1 John 5.14 says this, and this is the boldness, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything, and here's the condition, according to his will, he hears us. Now the word hear here in 1 John 5 actually means answers in the way that we're asking it. God always hears, but sometimes his answer is not what we expect when we don't pray in line with God's will. That's why Jesus in Matthew 21, 22 says this, whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. See, the point of the Bible is God hears. God hears the cry of our hearts. Now, there are many other verses in the Bible affirming that God is always within audible and even according to Romans chapter eight, inaudible range. In other words, sometimes the anguish that we find ourselves in is so painful that we can't even tell someone about it. That we can't even express the word. And that's why Paul in Romans eight says, God is able through the way that the spirit is at work in the heart of a believer, even to discern and to relate to and to answer the cries and the groans of our hearts. God is in audible and even unaudible, inaudible range. But there's a kind of condition to this, isn't there? That God answers those prayers according to his own will. That tells us that it is possible to cry out to God with impure motives and even for the wrong reasons. The Apostle Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, cites Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But it doesn't stop there. This is what it says. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And it kind of tells us the tension here. This is a tension that the psalmist is wrestling with. He's wrestling with the reality that he finds himself in a dark place, quite probably, although we're not certain, through his own choices, and now that dark place causes him to realize, I need God's intervention. I need God's help. And he's thankful that God actually will always hear. Does he who fashioned the ears not hear? God hears. But the question is, is God going to answer the prayer in the way the psalmist wants? And it lets us know this condition, the condition that we need to pray in accordance with God's will. That, that kind of idea here leads, this, leads us to the realization that the psalmist, for whatever reason, has come face to face with his own sin, and the weight of that encounter is clearly overwhelming. Have I gone too far? Can, can God hear me? The whole council of scripture says, yes, God hears. But he answers when we pray in accordance with his will. This leads us into verses three and four where we unpack this a little bit more, where we realize that, hey, we cry out and God hears. We have this sin issue, this problem that we're dealing with and God 
forgives. In verses 3 and 4, the word Lord is repeated here. If you, Lord, kept the record of sins, Lord, who could stand? There's no doubt that the, the verses here are driven by personal experience. Isn't it crisis here? Yet the language of verse 3 moves beyond his own personal experience to the real experience of the entire human race. If you, Lord, kept the record of sins, not just mine, but of everybody else's, who could stand? And the expected answer is no one. No one could stand in the presence of God and demand an audience. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 12 points out that our sin is fully known to God. This is what the prophet Hosea says. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up. Remember the message from a few weeks ago, Psalm 78, Ephraim is often a euphemism, a word that is used for the people of Israel. The people of Israel are being talked about here in chapter, uh, at the end in verse eight. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up. And then the prophet says, his sins are kept on record. So with that as a background here, when the psalmist says, Lord, if we could, because of the, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? The idea here, part of the idea is, hey, God does know. God does know. So with our sins fully known to God, who indeed can stand before him? And the answer is no one. The psalmist expects a negative answer here. No one can. Both the psalmist and the prophet Isaiah are attempting to remind God's people of the offensive nature of sin to a holy God. This is why Martin Luther called this the kind of Pauline psalm. It echoes Romans chapter three. Romans chapter six. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter six. But the wages of sin is death. Who can stand? The answer is no one. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this, and, I, and I've heard the, the kind of messages like this over and over again, I kind of get the picture of this God who is old, white hair, right, and angry. That's the impression of, of, I got of God every time I heard this kind of message. But the psalmist here, and the Old Testament as well, teaches us that it's not that God is angry at us so much that he's deeply troubled by sin. See, Psalm 130 takes us back to Genesis where the reality of human sin is portrayed through the lenses of how sin affects God, not just how it affects us. In Genesis 6, 5 and 6, we read these words. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. You get the impression there, only evil all the time, universal. And then verse 6, this is the impact, this is the point. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. Why? His heart was deeply troubled. 
Our sin not only affects us, and it affects us, it has an impact on us, it also troubles God. And the reason the psalmist cries out to God is not because he needs a quick solution to a major mess up. It's actually because he's come face to face with how his sinfulness, how the consequences of his actions have actually impacted God and very probably on the people around him. I hope you see this. Lord, if you made a record of sins, Lord, see the the duplication of Lord here, it puts the emphasis fully on God. This isn't about sin from our perspective. This is about sin from God's perspective. Sin troubles God. And what the psalmist is saying, look, if, if you cry out to God, God comes to you when you recognize that the situations, the decisions, the inclinations of your heart actually impact not only upon you, but actually upon the people that you love and even God himself. If that's your understanding, if that's your idea, then God comes. You see, the motivation for the psalmist's repentance here, which is what the New Testament calls it, is what verse three and four is, it's his repentance, is not that he needs God's help to get him out of trouble. Now, we've all been there, right? We've all found ourselves in a situation where we've probably made a wrong choice, done something, and we can't find our way out, and so we call out. So funny, when we were away, I booked a kind of European hatch. When I'm in Europe, I can drive my little Ford Focus. I had a Ford Focus moving up here, got stuck three times by November within three months, thought European hatches up here don't work. So when I go to Europe, I thought, I'm gonna, you know, we'll just rent a small, compact European hatch. Well, we get there and the car dealership gave us a brand spanking new, top of the range Volvo S90. You know the one where you push a button and it drives itself? I'm like, this is awesome. All-wheel drive, of course. So I'm in there, and I noticed the sunroof is open. And I had the car, sunroof is open. Okay, that's fine. You know, it's sunny. Driving along. And then the clouds kind of gather over the mountains. If any of you lived in the mountains, you know what that means. It's going to rain. Do you think I could close the sunroof? I couldn't close the sunroof. I said, Vipka needed to use the bathroom or get something. So I pulled in and it started to rain. So I pulled under a car wash type thing with the roof and I picked up my phone. I dialed the, I literally could not do it. I dialed the number of the, you know, the rental company. I said, hey, how'd you close the roof? Guy couldn't tell me. Vipka gets back in the car, kind of almost yanks the little button on the thing to close it. If any of you got an S90, you know what I'm talking about. It closes it. So if in doubt, ask a woman, right? But the whole point was I was in a situation where I needed help and I made a call. Why? Because I needed someone to help me out. I needed help to actually close the roof on a Volvo S90. If any of you get one and you can't close it, I know what to do now. Pretty much yank the button. But you see what I did? I needed help, so I made a call. Many of us find ourselves in situations where we need God's help, so we make a call. We cry. The psalmist is saying that isn't the way it works. We don't call out to God because we know what we need. We call out to God because we know the consequences of what we've done. See the difference? There's a fundamental difference between the two. And far too many people, I'm going to say this, probably don't come to Christ the right way. They come to God because they need God's help not because they've experienced God's 
nature, God's character, not because they've come face to face with the consequence of of their actions on the people that they love. See, when you come face to face with the consequence of your sin, that's when you cry out to God. And the words of verse three, with his emphasis upon the Lord himself, tell us where our emphasis in our cries need to be. Forgiveness is received when we recognize the holy nature of God and the reality that this God has been offended by our sin and has the right to punish it. God has that right. The psalmist says, look, I've made these choices and these choices have led me to this position of despair and God, I know that if I cry out to you, if I come before you, I don't have the right to stand because you know me. You know me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And part of a struggle with this Old Testament because God seems to judge sin immediately and radically in too, on too many occasions. They're gone. And we struggle with this, rightly so. We've only got a couple of occasions of that in the New Testament. And we miss, we miss the truth. Even in the Old Testament, the psalmist says, with you, even in spite of everything I've said, which is true, with you, there is forgiveness. Think about that. With you, there is forgiveness. This tells us that even in the Old Testament, this offended God doesn't want people dead. He wants people fully alive. Are you hearing me? This offended God doesn't want people dead. He wants people fully alive. Listen to the words of God himself through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. Ezekiel 33 verse 11. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He wants people to turn and then live. And so he says to the wicked, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? See, the wages of sin is death. That's the way it works. But God says, I don't want you dead. Yes, I am holy, I'm offended by sin. But what I want is for you to turn, turn. He repeats the phrase. That word there is the Hebrew word shab. It basically means to turn back, to turn back around, to return. The New Testament word for this is that word repent. Repent. Turn. Why turn? Because God doesn't want you dead. He doesn't want our relationships broken. He doesn't want us in bondage to addiction. God wants to fully redeem us. And the way to that, he says, is look, turn. Shab. Metanoia, repent. If I were to ask you to sum up the New Testament in one word, what word would you use? I've done this on many occasions and a number of people say, well, the word of the New Testament has to be love. God is love. This is love, not that 
we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for us. For God so loved the world. The word they said of the New Testament that sums up the gospel better than anything else is the word love. I disagree. I think the one word that sums up the gospel is the word repent. It was the first word that John the Baptist spoke. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Read the gospels. The first word that Jesus spoke was the word repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Read the parables. You see the message of repentance right there throughout all of the parables. And then Jesus dies. He raises again. And before he ascends to the Father, he gathers his disciples together. And there in Luke 24, he gives them this commission. Go and take this message of repentance to the world. Then he tells them to go into Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit. And as they're there praying, the Holy Spirit comes down, forces them out, and Peter preaches that first sermon. And people look and they say, Peter, what do we need to do to be saved? And what does Peter say? Repent. Then the book of Acts goes on and this message of repentance is taken to the world. And Paul, the apostle Paul, finds himself surprisingly through King Agrippa, in front of King Agrippa. And Agrippa looks at Paul and Paul tells him, Repent. Then you go into the writings of Paul and you see it all over everywhere. Repent. Turn. Change your life. Change your direction of your life. And we move into even the letter to Revelation. And in five of the seven letters to the church in Revelation, God says, repent. Turn. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the word that sums up the Christian message. Turn. Repent. And what I love about Psalm 130 is the way that it brings human sinfulness, sometimes the reality that we make stupid choices that get us in some deeply distressful places. It brings that reality together with God's holiness and also God's mercy. Yes, in the Old Testament, God is portrayed as a God who deals swiftly and drastically with sin frequently punishing it immediately in a way that's uncomfortable for us. And yes, in the New Testament, we experience more of God's mercy, the delayment of punishment, the reality that the punishment for sin was now placed on Jesus Christ himself. But church, make no mistake about it, God has always been a God who abounds in love, abounds in compassion, and wants people fully alive, not dead. This is the message of the Old Testament too. God, get this, even wants his enemies fully alive. Let me ask you, who's your enemy right now? Do you want them dead or do you want them fully alive? God wants his enemies fully alive. Take Egypt as an example. Egypt is the example of a people who were stubbornly opposed to the will of God for his people being outworked in the world. God punished them. Drastically, even immediately at some point in time. But God didn't want Egypt dead. God wants Egypt fully alive. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 22. This is what Isaiah said. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. But it hasn't got a period there. It actually goes on. He will strike them and heal them. How does that work? How do we find ourselves through our own choices in a place where we're being punished and yet have an opportunity to receive mercy at the same time? That's the kind of God God is. 
And then it goes on, they will turn to the Lord, Shub, they will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas. He will hear their cry and heal them. Listen, if God will do this for Egypt, don't you think that God wants to do this for you? If God does this for the enemies of his people, is there really a place that you can get to in life which is too far for God to hear and to forgive? And the answer is no. It doesn't matter how far you've sunk. It doesn't matter what you've done. God, if you come face to face with who he really is, hears your cry and forgives. And do you know what happens when God forgives? God comes. That's the psalm. God comes. I will wait, the psalmist says, for the Lord. My whole being waits. See, when you're desperate, you wait. And in his word, I put my hope. If we didn't get the idea, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Watchmen wait for the morning. The key word here is wait, right? Four times here. Wait. The example of waiting that is given of a watchman waiting through the night for the morning. Now, to understand this, we need to recognize that there is a difference between waiting for something and expecting something. The idea here is that we wait for God in the way the watchman expects that after the sun has set, the sun will rise. There is a difference between waiting for something and expecting the thing that we are waiting for. Now, to understand this, I, I want to show you this. Anything, any of you know what this is? This is basically, I've lost, we've lost all your bags, and we're going to try and help you get them back. So we arrived yesterday afternoon, Vipka and I, into Detroit, and you know the situation, first point of entry into the States, you've got to go and pick up your bags, except there were no bags to pick up. Now, it's not a surprise to me, because I flew through Paris. Any of you flown through Paris before? Awful airport. Last four times I've gone through, something has gone wrong. Okay, I hate that airport, but we changed our flights. We were originally going to go to Hawaii, and with that volcano, we were like, no, let's go to Europe instead. I really couldn't choose. I was glad I could get on the flight. But we get there, and and I'm like, uh, our bags didn't show up, and the lady said, where did you fly to? And I said, Paris, and she was like, yeah, no wonder. Um, And so, you know, you kind of give her your boarding passes, right? And and uh, they put a little baggage slips and they said, okay, uh, there's good news for you. The good news for you is we've tracked a bag. And I said, well, we've actually got four, not one. And they were like, well, we can guarantee you that one of them is basically on the next flight. It gets in here at 3.32. It'll be on the 7.30 flight from Detroit. It'll get in Grand Rapids by 8.32. And by tomorrow, you should actually have it. Well, we can be certain of that. Now, what did, what did that do in a situation like that? I'm waiting for my bag, but they told me that they knew that one of them was actually on the plane. It moved my waiting for something at a certain point in time to an expectation that this something would arrive at a specific point in time. So Vipka and I woke up at 3.38 this morning 
got up, went downstairs, and at 4.05, there's a light coming up the drive, and at 4, was it, 4.05, 4.10, something like that, one bag arrived. I looked at him and said, how many have you got? And he said, one. And I said, there's only a problem. There's a little problem. I've got four. And he said, well, I'll probably see you later in the week. But see, I'm still waiting. I'm waiting for it. Kind of believing it'll come. But it's not as specific, is it? I'm waiting for something that's going to arrive sometime. But I want you to note what the psalmist says here in this verse, and it's it's really important because some of us are waiting for God to come in our distress, but we're not experiencing the confidence, the boldness that we need to experience because we're waiting, not expecting. And there's a difference between the two. The psalmist here says, look at it, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits and In his word, I put my hope. The difference between waiting for something and expecting the thing we're waiting for is the whole idea of being prepared. See, something happens to move waiting to expecting. Let me give you an example. We've just had a baby boom on our staff unprecedented baby boom in the 120 years of history in Central. So we've got Austin, congratulations buddy. I noticed your wife's not here. Oh yeah, she had a baby three days ago. So Austin and Anne, you've got Tyler and Jessica, we've got Ethan and Hannah. They were all, they're now all parents, right? They've all had a baby. Now what did they do when they announced it to the staff? Did they stand up and say, hey, we're waiting? You don't say that, do you? What do you say? We're expecting, everybody knows what that is. Why do we say expecting, not waiting? Because you're waiting for a baby, right? And we all know that the pressures of carrying a baby to term and the angst that goes on with that is real. But we actually say, hey, we're expecting. What happens when a couple are expecting? Well, the belly grows, right? And with every increased, or you know, every increasing pound that the lady will gain, there is the pressure to make sure that that everything is ready for when the baby comes. There's a difference between waiting for a baby and expecting a baby, and the difference is the preparation the parents put in for the arrival of the baby. The psalmist says, look, I cried out to you, I know I'm in a difficult spot, I know that you have the right to punish me instantly, but I thank you that because of your mercy, you forgive me, and so God, I'm going to wait. That waiting isn't the psalmist sitting on his butt waiting for God to show up, it's actually going back to the word that gives him the confidence that God is going to show up. After a bad day, I turn to Vipka every night and say, "Hun, today was a bad day, but tonight the sun will set and tomorrow the sun will rise and God will be there. How do I know that? I know it from the word. The psalmist says, I put my hope in the word. That's his preparation. If some of you are in a dark place, if some of you are crying out to God, let me ask you, are you waiting for God or are you expecting him? And if you're having trouble expecting him, the way the psalm says you know God will show up is by putting your hope in the truth 
of God's word. And God's word says it doesn't matter how far you've run, it doesn't matter what you've done, God forgives and God comes. Now, now, the point then, God calls us to expect his coming, not simply to wait for it. Now, what are we kind of waiting for? What happens when God comes? Well, the classic kind of evangelical message on this is, look, God, when God comes to you and you cry out, you are saved. And it's as if this salvation message is about God giving you a kind of a, a, an amusement park ticket to the heavenly amusement park. It's really about, hey, guess what? God has forgiven you of all of your sin, and that's really great. And guess what? You get a ticket to heaven when you die. Isn't that awesome? That's not the Bible. The Bible talks about redemption. It talks about transformation. It talks about total change. And Psalm 130 has this as well. It talks about redemption. The word that's repeated is redeem. Look at this. What we read here is Israel. Uh, notice something. Wait a minute. The entire Psalm at this point has been personal experience, right? I cried out to the, out, out to the Lord from the depths. Lord, can I stand in front of your presence? It's been personal experience the whole way through. And yet all of a sudden, it's not personal anymore, is it? See, when God comes to you and actually saves you and redeems you, your life is so changed that it's not about you anymore. That's verse 4. God, I thank you that you forgive so that, purpose clause, we will fear you, the NIV has, which basically means serve you. See, when God comes to save you, it's never about you, it's about other people. The psalmist here has had an encounter with God in the depths because he expected it. Anything you ask, pray it in faith, you'll receive expectant hope that comes from the word. He's received it, and now all of a sudden he's been changed. And this redemption now becomes a, a testimony before the peoples, before the congregation. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. See, the Christian gospel isn't just that God plucked us out of sin and he's given us a free pass into heaven when we die. No, the gospel is about full redemption, transformation, an experience of shalom, of peace. God's increasing rule in our lives and in this world. Full redemption. Have a look at this picture. This was taken uh, just a few days ago. I got Vipka to stand here and I took the photo and it's better to ask for forgiveness rather than permission, right? And uh, so I took the photo and I said, "Han, would you mind if I kind of use this on Sunday? And she was like, oh, what are you gonna do? This is Vipka in the Black Forest area. In the background there, you can see the, the kind of Black Forest keeps going. And if I lifted the camera up, you see the Swiss Alps behind us, part of the world that Vipka grew up in. And uh, just behind Vipka there, I don't know whether you can see it, just off her left shoulder, there's a little faded part of a, of a town. That German town is called Neuenweg, which if I were to translate that into English would be the New Way. In that city, in that New Way city is a New Age clinic that my wife was sent to when she was 14 with little hope of ever being freed from an eating disorder that should have killed her unless she found the God in her. 
And infrequently, we will go back to that place and we will stand on this mountain and we will look at that and we will recognize that God didn't just save my wife, God fully redeemed her. See, she was in a dark place that should have killed her. But God heard her cry and came. And what does the Bible say happens when we find ourselves in mire and mud? The Bible says he comes, he lifts us up, and he sets us on a solid place in a high place. That's why I love that song, All the Poor and Powerless. What does it say? It says, stand on the mountains and shout it. This is what the psalmist is doing in verses 7 and 8. Israel, put your hope in God. How can he say that? He says it because he's experienced the full redemption of God. And that's why my wife gives up her time with, what, a couple of hundred other people on every Monday night at 6.30, and I celebrate recovery to say, you know what, it doesn't matter what hurt we've got, what habit we've got, even what hang-up we're holding on to. We believe that God not only saves, he fully redeems God fully redeems. We wanted to wrap up this message in the Psalms just by reminding us of that truth. God not only saves us, the story of the Bible from the beginning to the end is that God fully redeems us. Let me ask you, what are you holding on to? What are you crying out to God for right now? On the basis of this Psalm, on the basis of God's word, I want you to know this. God has heard you cry. God forgives anything that has led, you have done that has led you to that place. But more than that, God is going to come. He's going to come to you and he's going to take you out of that pit that you find yourself in. And he is going to establish your feet in a mountaintop where the challenge to you is the challenge that this psalmist demonstrates. Where you declare to people, put your hope in God. Because God saves us, not for us, he saves us for the world.